Welcome to Unspun, a podcast by Population. This week, we're talking about regenerative and liberative approaches to sustainability with Dominique Drakeford and Whitney McGuire, the co-founders of Sustainable Brooklyn. This is part two of our two-part series. Don't go away. We'll be right back after the break. Welcome to Unspun, a podcast by Population. We're three sustainability experts unraveling what's holding us back from regeneration and liberation in the fashion and home industries. I'm Danielle Arzaga. I'm Catherine Tedrow. And I'm Lauren Hill. In this episode, we're thrilled to speak with Whitney McGuire about her experience as a lawyer and her relentless pursuit to redefine sustainability for the fashion and creative industries. Her approach is truly people-centered and specifically focuses on the safety and liberation of the Black community. Today, we're excited to have part two of a conversation with Whitney McGuire, co-founder of Sustainable Brooklyn, an organization that's bridging the gaps between the mainstream sustainability movement and targeted communities. Whitney is also an attorney specializing in intellectual property and other legal issues affecting creative industries, including fashion, and chairwoman of Fashion Law Week, a week-long Washington, D.C.-based symposium dedicated to educating the community about legal issues impacting the fashion industry. She is a true vanguard redefining the sustainable fashion industry by centering Black, Indigenous, and people of color in addressing sustainability efforts at the individual, community, and corporate level. Whitney, thanks so much for being with us today. Thank you for having me. So we asked the same question of Dom, and we'd love to hear your perspective. You occupy a really unique space in the sustainable fashion movement. Can you tell our audience a little bit about how you came to be where you are and what that feels like and looks like for you? Sure. So I think like a cornerstone in my life was the decision to go to law school. And before that, I was grappling with career paths that, you know, I would bring to my parents and they'd be like, how are you going to make money? You know, like, and so I realized at a very early age that um, certain choices that I had to make were dependent upon my survival and upon and dependent upon my responsibility to figure out how to survive. So the idea of sustaining myself was just like second nature based on the circumstances that I grew up in. And so the decision to go to law school was more from a practical uh, was more a practical decision that also spoke to a very deep desire in me to address injustices and to speak not necessarily on behalf of people who couldn't speak for themselves because I, I don't believe that people can't speak for themselves. I just wanted to make pathways for their voices to be heard and for people like me to be heard. So I thought, you know, law school over design school makes the most sense. But once I got there, I was like, this sucks. (laughs) I was like, what am I going to do? Like, I was just like, first year dealing with like crazy racism within the institution, within my classmates. And then, you know, grappling with this investment that I made, you know, like, how can I get, I can't give up. So I went to my property professor and she told me about fashion law. And so this is in 2010. I had no idea about it. And she was just like, in fact, I'll move your final 
so that you can go up to New York, go to Fordham's Fashion Law Symposium. It was the first year they were doing it. And she was like, just see what's out there. And so I'm so grateful for this woman because that really was the turning point for my life in terms of how I got into professionally, you know, the sustainability world. So I went to the symposium and I'm learning about all of the ways that fashion, all of the legal intersections within fashion. And I really gravitated towards the conversation about fast fashion and the conversation about the labor abuses overseas. In conjunction with my undergraduate degree, which was in Africana studies and English, I was aware of, you know, how industries had, you know, pillaged certain islands in the archipelago, like Dominican Republic, Haiti, mm. and, you know, fashion industry being like the primary one. <laughs> so I was, I was already aware of these injustices, but Bangladesh was something that was like kind of in, in the conversation at this time. It, it hadn't happened. Rana Plaza had, hadn't happened yet. But, um, and for your listeners who don't know what Rana Plaza is, it was a terrible disaster that could have been prevented where 2,000 factory workers or more lost their lives, mostly women, uh, because of ignored um, restrictions and complaints and uh, inefficiencies within the building that they were working in. And they were working because they had to meet these deadlines for fast fashion companies. And it sparked a whole, you know, kind of accountability trend, mm -hmm. uh, transparency trend in the fashion industry. So, you know, as I, so I started to go to fashion, I went to fashion law symposium. I came back to DC and I was like, is there anything that exists like this here? Fashion Law Week was something that was started by women at Howard University School of Law. I immediately connected with them and immediately got to work, was promoted to chairwoman. And, you know, we produced these um, amazing uh, symposiums that were centered on taking this like legal jargon, you know, that we kind of hear at the, the symposiums and bringing them to the uh, general public. You know, these are people who need to know about uh, these human rights abuses, how to protect their intellectual property, how to, you know, properly structure their fashion company so that they can be successful. And we're also having deep conversations about exploitation. We're having deep conversations about how intellectual property is appropriated, especially from Black designers, where these conversations weren't necessarily the main conversations in these professionals' mm -hmm. fashion law symposiums mm -hmm. that I was going to. And so that was the first time that I was really exposed to ways uh, to address the labor issues. I was introduced to a lot of nonprofits through the work that I did with um, Fashion Law Week. And, you know, I was aware that there are people who are on the ground working to correct these human rights abuses, but a lot of the onus is still on the companies to self-audit to maybe not have as much transparency in their supply chain and then deeply interrogating, what does that even mean? Especially when I come from a, a community that has been decimated by gentrification, by you know having Superfund sites close by, health issues galore and white flight. And I'm seeing how like these are correlated in my life. <laughs> you know, what's happening over there is not separate from what's happening over here, but we aren't making that connection. And it took me years of really sitting with that question and, you know, really 
owning in, in myself that like, Hey, sustainability has been the forefront of how I live my life because it is based, because my life is based on survival, but also liberation. And so that's kind of like how I got into this space. And it's been a whole journey uh, for the past 11 years since. I know we're, we're going to come back to talking more about what you see where you see the injustices, but the sustainability movement has largely been a reaction to that system really breaking down. And it's largely been ineffective in the mainstream at creating change. And this last year was a reckoning of all kinds for the fashion industry from greenwashing to woke washing. What did you see brands doing that really disappointed you this last year? I've been seeing brands disappoint me You know what I mean? Like, so I just saw more of the same. I saw more of the, you know, this tendency that it's not exclusive to the fashion industry. It's like a human born (laughs) like habit of, of ignoring harm and not taking accountability and, and trying to create a facade of being a good guy for the sake of honestly, your bottom line, which is capitalism. So Mm -hmm. I just saw more of that. I would say dismayed by the volume of companies that were really, you know, promoting their black squares. But then as time went by, their black employees were saying, hey, y'all don't really understand what Black Lives Matter really means because you're treating us like shit. And so, you know, I was actually more so inspired by those types of reactions to the sort of like habit that we have in America or really in whiteness in general to ignore harm, but promote a facade of of good. And so I was, I was inspired by the backlash from that more than I was dismayed by those companies doing what they always do. (laughs) So then seeing the strength of the backlash, because it definitely seemed like in this last year, there was more space publicly for criticism of what brands were doing. And like in real time, it wasn't this super delayed process. It was just like something happened and then there was public criticism. Does that make you feel hopeful that we could be at a transition point in the industry? Like, do you, do you see there being a lot of power there to create change? it's hard for me to look at it just within the fashion industry because the fashion industry depends so much on, and this reckoning depends so much on media, social media depends on um, new media and, and traditional media, old media and all the other intersections that impact that. (laughs) But I would say that, you know, social media, me too, the me too movement, just the, the presence of a a global pandemic that caused us to really slow down, sit in our homes and sit with ourselves. I think the combination of all of those things has made a way for, for the possibility of change. But we, we also see this habit coming back, you know, within, even in those aspects of me too, you see the backlash uh, to cancel culture, right? You see the backlash to, I mean, the media itself has, has completely been morphed into a, a money machine that has no foundation in truth. And 
sometimes we, we repeat those behaviors within our own social media. <laughs> and then you see the industry that wasn't doing so well before the pandemic responding to this need to be relevant. So I see that there are, you know, kind of opposite forces at play. So I can't necessarily say that I'm hopeful for change. I just do what I can to put more energy towards transformation and change. Yeah, I love that. And I appreciate you bringing up the the tension of these opposite forces at play in terms of operating within, which is a white supremacist capitalist system. And so all of our business paradigms and every industry are shaped from that. We can't like extract it. We are all, you know, we're focused on the fashion industry, but it's a microcosm of the dynamics that we see largely and kind of being in an, in an industry and in a world where our current business paradigms were predicated on extraction and exploitation. And so right. it feels like a lot of the solutions that kind of operate in the mainstream are mm-hmm. still functioning within that system. Mm-hmm. And I feel a tension of like, how much can we really radically change the system if we're operating within something that is inherently oppressive and harmful? Right. And how much do we need to like just disrupt it and build something on the side? Or do we need to be doing all of those things at the same time? Right. Yeah. I I don't know. I, I, same questions here. I recently saw this video, Zipa Blay. Yeah. She posted, maybe it was her cousin. But anyway, I saw this um, post that was, I think it was Oprah discussing, or no, Diana Ross discussing like how she understands that there are opposite forces at play in ourselves and in, you know, our surroundings all the time. It's just like how the universe works, like cause and effect, you know? So we, we, she's like, what I choose to do is put my energy towards, you know, the, the more positive, if I can, you know, the more positive thoughts, because she's like, as soon as a positive thought comes into my head, a negative thought comes right after it. And she's like, so if I, and that's kind of like how I've been living in this very tense time, which I think has been like my entire, our entire generation. <laughs> it's just been like really swimming in the tension. <laughs> and so I've been, um, just really focused in terms of like my work and in terms of like how I show up, you know, for, for myself and my family and community. It's like, if I have the capacity, if I have the capability to put more energy towards the transformative, positive parts of life, you know, the negative, it's not that it's not still there. It's just that I'm not contributing to it. (laughs) And I think that's been, I forgot your question, but I I don't know, maybe you didn't even ask a question, but that's just kind of like how I've been able to like keep going through this and sit with these questions of, do we tear the system down or do we just build something new? It's like, I'm just doing what I can to not put energy into the, the, the very clear examples of harm that I've experienced and that I see on a daily basis. And so part of that work is understanding how that harm shows up, what that looks like, how I perpetuate it, how I can mitigate it. You know, it's just a constant questioning of what I can do because this is beyond my lifetime, you know, but it, or our lifetimes, but it's, it's, it, if we put energy into transformation, it can happen. I love that. I know you are 
pulling on so many leverage points in your work just all the time. And if you would talk about that, like what the leverage points you are pulling on in the system as your part of change right now, your work with Greenish would be awesome to hear about and your work at large with Sustainable Brooklyn. I'm actually going to start with my law firm. And that, <laughs> and I was about yeah. to be like, and wait, what you're doing yeah. with your law firm, please. I'm, I'm going to Thank start you. with that because that is, like I said, the, the decision to go to law school was a pivotal one. It has caused me a lot of grief, <laughs> but it's also been we hear that. Im- imperative to, to forming who I am right now. And so part of that work, part of the struggle of, of experiencing so much rejection within trying to, to have a professional like trying to have a career in fashion law in a, in a career path that was kind of a field that was just becoming mainstream or people were just being able to define it, being, you know, one of the first people in that movement and being a brown skin woman in that movement and to, you know, receive all of the effects of just being a Black woman in this profession in addition to having to carve out my own path has led me to really bringing that all of the all of the work that I've had to do to survive that journey and to not let it take me under too many times because <laughs> it has taken me under. Um, but all I bring all of that to my work, and, and my work is primarily centered on protect helping artists protect their intellectual property. And you know, I have been working on their contracts and how to like help them understand their value and help them understand like, okay, this big company may seem like so good for your resume, but how deeply do we want to go in setting the standards for change? Like how deeply do we want to commit to it? Or are we still like just trying to feed ourselves, which is this basically the state that many of them are in. And so I'm grappling with the effects of capitalism and the intersection uh, uh, as it intersects with, uh, you know, art, which I think is life giving part of humanity and, and protecting it. And especially when it comes from people who've been marginalized and people who are very closely connected to suffering, because on the other side of that is resilience and just amazing things. And so that part of my life has has been so important to you know showing up as like a mother and as a leader for greenish and as a mem- as a partner in sustainable brooklyn so in terms of greenish well let me go to sustainable brooklyn so i met dom at the point where i had just moved back to brooklyn and i was like what is my legacy going to be? Cause I'm pregnant and I'm going to have this baby. And, you know, after I gave birth, which I had preeclampsia, I had all the things that they say black women get. Okay. So like I had that. And then, you know, like I'm in this headspace of like, how, how am I going to use my degree, my passion for, for real change and right where I am. And so Dom was in that same space. She had just started Melanin Ass and um, she was really like committed to uh, redefining sustainability. And, and so was I. So when Sustainable Brooklyn started, we, we started by having a town hall, which was just, just like 
and I'm sorry if you're hearing this for the second time, but, (laughs) you know, we wanted to meet with our community and to see what their needs were before we even jumped out and said, we're starting this thing. What do y'all need? Because we know what we need, but that may not be, you know, we are privileged in many ways, you know, like, so we need to know what, what needs are out there. And uh, that really framed the foundation of our work. And Greenish is just an extension of that. Greenish is our response to a lot of the hypocrisy that uh, we see on a daily basis in this industry that, you know, that whiteness and capitalism kind of, not kind of, that they absolutely feed into or perpetuate. And so I personally was very affected by Breonna Taylor's murder. George Floyd was, I never even watched the video. I didn't have to, to know that it fucking sucked. His relative is one of my neighbors who we're close with. And so, you know, I'm feeling that on a community level too. And I was feeling just so much anxiety because everywhere I look, like it's hard to commit to sustainability when you don't fucking feel safe. And so my, I'm always talking about getting to the root of what, what is it? You know, I, I feel it up here. I feel it on the canopy, but what's going on at the root, you know, that's, that's giving, that's, you know, how I'm sprouting all of these, these feelings. And so at the root of my um, anxiety was just this fear of not feeling safe in my body, in my community, even though I am at the moment. And so I was thinking about the ideas of duties of care that we have in general, just as business owners or uh, property owners, we have certain duties to avoid negligence, to avoid liability for harm. <laughs> and so this is, you know, negligence was is, is a prominent body of law that, that a lot of people understand, but we don't attribute certain types of harm to receiving justice or legal recourse, which, and I found that the part of that was harm done to black people. Um, there's really no other demographic that has been harmed as much as, as, as black people in, in instances of transaction and doing business and, um, meaning where they spend their money. And I see a lot of the conversation about accountability and transparency, putting the onus on consumers, Like we have to be the ones to demand this. Like we have to be the ones to change. And it's like, yeah, we can, we can make changes. Clearly a pandemic showed that we are capable. Some of us are capable of making big lifestyle decisions, you know, for the greater good, you know? Well, just to interject briefly, yeah, um, just hearing what you're talking about is so important. Uh, And Mm -hmm. I want to reiterate it for our audience. So much of the way that you do your work and through sustainable Mm -hmm. Brooklyn, you and Dom do your work is like a very true people centered design. I don't want to call it human centered design because as a Mm -hmm. model, there are some problems with that. Right. Yes. (laughs) But it's people centered. Like you are people centered and focused on the people who you want to serve. It's not this outside, like you know, entirely philosophical, intellectual conversation about like me sitting here from my perspective, how can I help you? It's right. more it's like really that relationship building, mm-hmm. community building and acknowledging the interconnection that we all have as humans and that we're part mm-hmm. of a system together that we all have different, you know, pieces to play in. 
And I love that modeling that you do that, like, that's your process that you started sustainable Brooklyn. And it wasn't like, we're going to start this organization and say that this is our mission and like not ever have conversations with people. Yeah, no. Yeah. We couldn't do that. We could never do that. And yeah, so that's why with Greenish, we're working with different groups too within the community. Um, We're working with Protect Black Business, Mokata Museum, an equity and policy uh, firm called uh, Pink Cornrows. We're working with a data strategist, Piali. We are really just like getting focus groups done, you know, focus groups from, from Black consumers in the community. We're starting, we're only piloting in Brooklyn, you know, because it's like, I'm not trying to change the world right now. (laughs) I'm just trying to do what I can to like help my neighborhood, help myself, you know, not just help myself, but as an extension of myself, my Mm -hmm. neighborhood, my community, my family, the locality of, of my efforts, I feel, and of, of our efforts in general, what we can do right where we are have more of an impact than, than someone who's has a billion dollars and just throws money at the problem. And so we're working, so we're putting the, from the focus groups, we're, we're, we're getting to the root of like what causes black consumers to feel unsafe in businesses and in doing where they spend their money basically. And we decided to call it greenish because this is also the spirit of the original green book of the Negro motorist guide that uh, Victor Hugo green and his team created and they, if from the 30s through the 70s, this publication was a Bible for an emerging middle class of, of Black Americans who had access to automobiles and had access to the ability to travel, had time to travel with their families. And they wanted, to, we were still smack dab in, in Jim Crow, smack dab in in racial terror 101. So, you know, we're smack dab in, in all of these. So this, this travel guide was essential to not getting us killed and also having a, a little piece of the American dream, right? So we're taking the conversation a little bit further and saying like, you know, we're only going to frequent, hopefully, places that, or prefer to frequent places that, or businesses that uphold the safety of Black consumers. Because when you start from the safety of Black consumers, everyone else is protected. <laughs> like, we are, like, and we're we're talking about the, even the intersections within what that means as a Black consumer, the, the differently abled, the LGBTQIA plus communities, you know, because there is also a feeling of unsafety within those groups, you know, in, in Black spaces. So, so we are, we are asking deep questions from, from our community members to uh, generate standards of care that are very clear, that hopefully could be codified and provide more protection than our current negligence uh, body of law offers and that our current human rights laws offer. All of these recourse, all of these avenues for uh, recourse against harm require the harmed person to initiate the process. Whereas this is a tool that is just like, it's automatic. Like you don't have to put yourself out there. It's based on real data. And if a, if a business has, you know, if we get 
win from consumers that the business has committed racial harm, then your grading goes down. You know, it's green, yellow, red. Is this, is this safe enough to go green? Is this a questionable yellow? Has this been reported? Has racial harm been reported? Not just to the press, but within the community? Yes. Okay. Red. Fix it. And we have for Black businesses, we have Protect Black Business as our partner to work with Black businesses because we understand that we're not on an equal playing field in in this whole (laughs) scheme. So, you know, I grapple with the fact that this, we are working within capitalism, you know? And so this is an example where I have these questions where it's like, can I change the system? Can we change the system within the system? When we know that in, really the system is what's causing the harm and it really needs to go away. It needs to be destroyed. I don't know. You know, I know it needs to be destroyed, but right now we have some immediate needs that aren't met and our lives are at stake. So, you know, I'm, I'm just always thinking about these things. Greenish is a project, you know, we have a lot of faith in it, but we move like water, you know, if it becomes irrelevant, I, which I hope it will be in the very near future. We'll move on to something else. Can I just ask where you guys are at in the in that project kind of ideation phase or if it's already like out yeah. there? Are people using it? No, it's not out there yet. Okay. We are still in the research phase and we are about to start our first round of fundraising. Great. Yeah. So Congratulations. Out. So we have uh, the greenishbook.com is the URL and it's not up yet, but we will be announcing when our um, next round of focus groups will be via the website. And uh, we will be compensating our focus group participants this time before we were able to. <laughs> Real talk, in 2020, we had no money. <laughs> <laughs> now we're, we're uh, you know, applying for, for funding through, you know, we have a wonderful um, fiscal sponsor and, you know, we're, we're just, we just want to make sure that we have enough information about what the needs are of our community before Mm -hmm. we we launch. So vital. It's so important. I mean, checking in before acting, it's, things just don't usually happen this way. And so you just see how it's such a a different approach. Right. Yeah. So before we wrap with our final two questions, I was just curious if you could share with our audience a little bit more about why we need more protections, particularly around intellectual property in the fashion industry, like what problem that is helping to solve, if you could unpack that a little bit more? Yeah. So during initially when these, when the fashion law conversations were happening and and the condemning of fast fashion was just beginning on a mainstream level, the conversation was that it has impacts on humanity, labor sector. It has economic implications for um, emerging or for smaller uh, brands who may not be able to generate as much volume. And then it has this uh, effect on designers themselves, which is that designers who are maybe just beginning or who have been operating and are now becoming more visible to the public are more easily copied. And when they're copied, there really is no current legal, I wouldn't say there isn't no current legal recourse, but the traditional recourse for being copied for artists is usually copyright law. And there is no real 
protection for fashion designers within copyright law because fashion occupies a very unique space within um, this idea of like design because it's functional. So I've, I was working for a lobbyist who was drafting uh, one of the bills that would have introduced copyright-like protection. It couldn't be just strict copyright, you know? And, and so it had to introduce copyright-like protection for fashion designers. And we were seeing these, um, you know, cases with Louboutin and Yves Saint Laurent and um, um, Chanel. And, you know, all of this was like coming to a head at this point. But the impact always is on the most marginalized, right? These conversations are happening. These are impacting major fashion houses, these, these cases of intellectual property theft and, and, and counterfeiting. And outside of trademark law, you can bring a case under trademark law. I will say that to your audience, but trademark is limited. And it, if you don't want to smack labels all over your shit, it's going to be really hard <laughs> to protect it. So who, who bears the brunt of that? Always the most marginalized. And so I recognize that, you know, if I put myself as a, in a designer's shoes, like if I was an emerging designer, do I have access to capital? Do I have access to resources that are quote unquote considered sustainable? Do I have access to, you know, different ways to make my designs just like so unique? Or do I have access to a lawyer when, you know, these cases or these designs are knocked off. So I became that lawyer. The other side of this conversation is that fast fashion and the theft of intellectual property is based on this like culture of, of aspiration, right? Luxury has created aspirational culture. Fast fashion filled that void. And before fast fashion, it was Canal Street. <laughs> you know, like, it's like, we still... And we're entitled to that. We're entitled to, especially the most marginalized, to have nice things and to wear, you know, current designs that may not, you know, it may not be the original, but it looks like it. You know what I mean? Like, that's just like, it is how I grew up, you know? Like, I was going to the thrift stores to, to mimic what I saw in the magazines, but I still wanted to look like that. I still wanted to have those things. and so. I became a consumer of fast fashion at a, an early age, you know, like at 17, 18, you know, like, and so these conversations about how it is so damaging to the labor sector, we're leaving out how it's also damaging emerging designers. And so if they don't want to perpetuate this like cycle that fast fashion is created or, you know, this culture of aspiration is created. Uh, that luxury is created, how do we set them up, you know, to the point where they, they feel confident enough to put their designs out there and to feel like they can be sustainable as a business. Mm -hmm. And right now we're still trying to figure that out, but I'm trying to work within the, that, fill that void for designers and for artists who have amazing work, may not have the resources to have, you know, the right legal representation. I'm limited. I'm, I'm limited in so many ways because I also have to, have to survive. And so I have to, you know, I can't take pro bono cases all the time. You know, I can't charge lower fees like I used to because I got a kid now, you know, so it's I'm dealing with with that, too. Just like feeling like I'm not even in resourced enough to provide resources. <laughs> mm, yeah, that's when I think it's so important to have 
these conversations that people are listening in on to hear that there, there's a need for protection. And, and that's even in a specific relationship, you know, with designers. And then we like expand that to a global scale and talk about cultural appropriation, like also in our country, all over the world. Over and the world. there's no protection. They're like, you know, communities of people organizing themselves and examples of that, but like on a global level, there's nope. no system in place to protect communities from their IP being stolen and their culture, their cultures right. and their heritage then being monetized by someone who has no reference point for the importance of that. Absolutely. I mean, that's how our art museums became what they are today. <laughs> I don't want to derail us too much, but I did hear just hear of a case of a lingerie company or brand based in Brooklyn, I think, who has this kind of pattern that they put on all of their packaging and tissue paper and stuff. And this girl basically stole that pattern and started making bathing suits with it. And I, I think I think they are challenging her in court for this, but yeah, that's like but, that's a, a very clear trademark, you know, case could be a design patent uh, infringement too. Mm-hmm. But yeah, that's that's one way where you know if you have a distinctive visual element, artistic element on your uh, designs and that is separable. So that can be, you know, you can bring a case against that, but the, the designs themselves, like, you, do you guys remember when, or do you remember when uh, McQueen had those like armadillo shoes that uh, Lady Gaga wore? Mm-hmm. Those were like knocked off by so many people, but they were so distinctive that you could like, no one else was making armadillo shoes like that, you know? So it's like, that's a very clear case of like, okay, design. I mean, copyright may not protect this, but it's it's just very clear that this is like an original, something that we can attribute to McQueen. But it it got really dicey with the Yves Laurent Louboutin case because of the red bottom and Mm -hmm. um red is something that you can trademark colors are something you can trademark uh if they're distinctive which is crazy and so we saw that go back and forth we saw this the breakdowns of the legal structures within the the systems that we've we've said would work for for cases like this you know we saw the difference the French court came to a completely different conclusion because they have different protections for artists. They have uh, at least a little bit more respect for Mm. the idea that someone can live their life as an artist and not necessarily be behind a machine pumping out uh, labor for for a completely capitalist machine that has nothing to do with Mm -hmm. them. So we see that just like that ideology of, of the artist being noble and being something that deserves as much respect as our doctors and our lawyers and our accountants, that attitude differs worldwide. And Whitney, I mean, all of the places we've been in this conversation, is there one number one question that you really want the industry to answer right now? If there's something that's just at the very top of mind for you? I don't give a fuck about this industry. Y'all can ask yourselves the questions. I'm done. I'm just like, I'm just like talking to people who are impacted by your lack of questioning, basically. Perfect answer. Okay. (laughs) Seriously, perfect answer. And love that, love how your conversation and Dom's conversation talk to each other. So, which makes me excited to ask this very last question. Uh Uh-oh. 
Do you have an unspun hero is what we're calling it. Slightly cheesy. We'll get used to it. That's behind the scenes. That's really unraveling the system. Someone who's working to dismantle and create change, transformative change that you're seeing here in your lifetime and your space that you're occupying in it. Who would you want to shout out and be heard? I definitely want to shout out Ngozi Okoro. My bad if I said that wrong, Ngozi. But I I think uh, Custom Collaborative, which is, you know, her brand and company, they're doing amazing work. They are filling a void that is just like a gaping hole in the fashion industry and providing solutions for people impacted by all of the effects of unsustainable systems, behaviors, thinking. And yeah, I just see that as a like truly sustainable business model that, and if you can, if you're listening, please look up Custom Collaborative. It's a Harlem-based incubator brand in Harlem and donate to them, buy buy the clothing that these people make there and you know support them as much as possible but other there are other incubators like that all over you know the world so yeah and gozi is is a champion and i want to shout out like me and dom like you know i i'm a firm believer in giving yourself flowers so i definitely want to shout out our work as as just humans <laughs> and i want to shout out y'all for, for having this platform. We have worked together before and I've always felt like you all were so aligned with, you know, the ethos behind what Dom and I support. And I, you know, just am very grateful for this opportunity to, to address your audience. And I see how hard you all have been working in, you know, to, to do what you can, you know, from your part of the world and your part of the industry. So, you know, kudos to y'all for real. Yeah. Thank you, Whitney. Thank you so much for coming on and talking to us. And thank you. (laughs) Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to another episode of Unspun and for joining the conversation to create a new vision for the future of fashion and home. Huge thanks to this week's guest, Whitney McGuire, for sharing her perspective on the industry. You can follow her work on Instagram at SustainableVK or at Whitney R. McGuire, or visit her website, WhitneyRMcGuire.com. To join the conversation, follow us on Instagram at WeArePopulation and visit our website, WeArePopulation.com. Unspun is mixed and edited by Compost Media Flow. Our theme music is by Richie Quake and cover art by Ryan Welch Designs. You can find us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts.